Over the mountains. This is episode 16, Dangerous Liaisons from 1988. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today we have Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Bonjour. So I'm excited about this movie, or I was excited about this movie. Now we watch it. I mean, I don't want to say it's like in the future tense, but because Tobin, I don't know. I mean, we've recorded more than we've released. So even if you've listened to all the ones we put out to now, you haven't really gotten to this point yet. But like. Mike, what, like the last like 10 movies Keanu's done, he's been in high school. And yeah. so huh. I, I knew, you know, regardless of what this movie was about, he was not, it was not going to be the same movie that we've been doing for the last two months. Like this is a brand new Keanu. This is a whole new, you know, different continent, different part of the world, different century, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's our very first period piece, and uh, I love this period. I'm very excited that this is where we are, and I'm, I look forward to talking about this one. What's interesting, sort of, is that this movie was rushed through production because there's another movie called Valmont, which was going to come into theaters the next year, and so they were both adapted from the Dangerous Liaisons novel. This novel from 200 years ago was going to have two adaptations within a year of each other, you know, in the same year. And so we'll get to it later about in terms of casting, like people were like for one or the other, and people chose one or the other. But it's weird like, that there's like, these competing stories. So like, if this movie you know, at any time feels rushed, I guess, or like less than it could have been, I think that's sort of part of you know, why. But also, at the same time, you know, it's our first Academy Award-winning Keanu Club movie, and it won three Academy Awards. So hmm. even if you know, it feels rushed or whatever, it's still got good stuff going on. Yeah, of course, the, the reason that this 200-year-old book was adapted so immediately is that the, the Christopher Hampton, who was a playwright before writing the screenplay for this movie, he wrote a play based on the novel. And that play became very successful immediately and was you know optioned to make this movie. And then, of course, the producers of Valmont saw the play, realized it was a book. And they could just make the book because the book had mm-hmm. you had you have to buy the rights to the book, right? So it was yeah. actually the play that this movie is based on that sort of spurred both movies into production. Oh, right, and I read about that because Alan Rickman starred in the play as the John Malkovich role, right. oh. and apparently was approached to do this role instead of Malkovich, he's like, nah, I'm going to do Die Hard instead. (laughs) So he just went off and did Die Hard. So, I mean, that's pretty great. Good job, Alan Rickman. I think you made the right choice. It worked out for everybody, I think. So this was more of an adaptation of the play than the book? Yes. Okay. He's gone on to do a bunch of other great screenplays, things like um, Atonement, a lot of sort of, you know, high quality British adaptations. He's done the screenplays for those. But this was his sort of, his, his first step that direction. Have you seen Valmont? I have years ago, but I have, yeah. Do you remember? Is it as, is it good? It is good. Yeah, it is surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, I, I have to confess, maybe this is the right place to do it, that I love this movie. I, I have loved this movie. This is one of my Desert Island movies. Um, really? Dangerous Liaisons, yeah. I, and I realized that as I, I remembered it as I was watching it and made a list of, you know, a bunch of others. And Keanu is actually in another of my Desert Island movies, Ooh, which is much ado. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, uh, and I, as I was watching this movie, I watched this so many times in high school that as I was watching it to get ready for this show, I could quote lines verbatim <laughs> before they came out uh, of the people's mouths. I mean, I, I know this movie backwards and forwards. There were I, I had more than one girlfriend in high school with whom we sort of fashioned our 
ourselves, we thought, after Malkovich and um, <laughs> Glenn Close, which is, in retrospect, maybe not a great thing to do, but I, I was, sort of, <laughs> was sort of obsessed with this movie. And, and so when I saw Valmont when I was in film school, with some trepidation, <laughs> because I, I like this movie so much, and it's good, it's, it, is, it is different, it is tonally, um, and some of the rushness that you talk about uh, in this movie, I think makes this movie a little more scrappy and a little more my sensibility, maybe. But yeah, Valmont is definitely worth seeing. It's surprising to have two films based on the same uh, subject matter that are as, as good as these two movies are. And it's also interesting of all the movies to be sort of these sister films or twin films, you know, like Volcano Dante's Peak, that it would be this like a, you know, a serious period piece about revenge and deceit and things like that, that that, that would get two movies I, I find kind of funny. And, you know, I, I also say like I do, I've never seen this before and I did like it very much. Like I do, I am a fan of this period. I'm just sort of kind of figuring that out. I've been watching Marie Antoinette a lot by Domino Coppola, <laughs> by <laughs> Sofia Coppola. And, you know, that's right around this exact same time. And I've also, I've always been a fan of Barry Lyndon and parts of that movie take place around this same time as well. You know, I, I am a fan of this time period and I liked it so much that if I'd noticed the holes in it and that you say it was rushed makes sense now, but uh, that didn't bother me, you know, because I'm just a fan of this story and this period and they definitely pull it off. What's sort of interesting about this story, as you said, the story was also adapted into Cruel Intentions, which I don't see, I don't know if I saw all of or I've seen, I know I've seen at least parts of. But there's like one point in this movie where I was just like, why is Bittersweet Symphony not playing? Like there was there's one moment where I was like, it needs to happen at this point. Not that that's necessarily a good movie. I don't remember really much of anything about it except I remember people sort of like lounging around, which I guess happens a lot yeah. in this movie too. Well, it was big because Sarah Michelle Gellar has a lesbian kiss in it. And so I also remember that at the time it got a lot of news for that. And it was very popular though amongst the kids. I remember my brother and sister loved that movie. And having seen it definitely helped me sort of navigate this version. Now, Sarah Michelle Gellar point brings up a point that I want to ask Tobin, because he saw this one that came out when he was of a younger age. Mike and I were talking before we started recording about, I don't, I don't know how to say this without really being sexist, but I think that based on what this movie's actually about, I think it's worth talking about, like, attractiveness and stuff. But what we were saying is that, like, it's sort of weird how Michelle Pfeiffer looks kind of homely in this movie, mm. and Uma Thurman is really, really attractive. I'm not sure, you know, as a high school student at the time, if you were going in there looking, for, like, just for a period piece, like, with these, like, pretty ladies, <laughs> but I'm not sure, you know, if the same reason people in the 90s watched for Sarah Michelle Gellar, was this a movie that people were like, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer's in it? So a couple of things. First of all, I didn't see it when it actually came out. I was 10 when the movie was released. So oh, okay. I, I was, I, but, but, you know, within the next five years, I was watching it on VHS repeatedly. Now to Michelle Pfeiffer. So the, one of my other obsessions from middle school and high school was Michelle Pfeiffer which maybe in some ways led me to this movie. I had a lot of Catwoman posters up in my wall uh, after that Batman Returns movie came out. You're totally right. She looks less glamorous than we're used to seeing her. She, they, she, they play down her beauty in some ways, I think because of the kind of character that she is, right? Like she is meant to be completely virtuous and and so they don't you know do a lot to accentuate her uh, natural beauty makeup wise etc you could see another movie by the same director called Cherie from a probably 15 years after um, this movie was made starring Michelle Pfeiffer and she looks 
you know, ravishing in that movie. And they, they do everything they can to sort of make her as glamorous as possible. Okay, so I came into this movie <laughs> for, you know, because I, I was I was into period pieces. I was into film. I was into Michelle Pfeiffer. I discovered Uma Thurman in the course of watching this movie. And I think that there there was certainly the, um, you know, the sexual content of it and the risque, not not, not necessarily just the nudity, but the, the whole idea of sex as a battlefield you know, I think that was probably <laughs> attractive to me as a as a high school student and to and to other people too. But yeah, it wasn't just titillation. I think I think there was there's so much more here in terms of uh, you know deception and how that intersects with with sex and with class and with money and that that really sort of was a, a meal I was ready to ready to eat at that point. <laughs> yeah, I think what's interesting about her character is she's just the most naturally beautiful one, but doesn't do anything to enhance that. And it is based on her character because, you know, she's very much of the cloth. You know, she's she's not sexually adventurous like the other characters. She doesn't live in that world. That world is going to be forced upon her. So, okay, so two things I want to say. First of all, the lesser point, I guess, is that both Michelle Pfeiffer and Uma Thurman will go on to become Batman villains. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird that that happens. But mm-hmm. number two, I think this is something that, I don't know, I don't know if it just, I don't know if I'm like, you know, I don't know if I have brain damage or what, but I feel like a lot of Keanu movies lately, there's been like a couple characters that look very similar. And I feel like in certain scenes, I mean, Uma Thurman and Michelle Pfeiffer look similar. And it's, I mean, it's not really difficult to tell the two apart, but like, I'm not sure if there's like a purpose to that. Do you think? Or am I crazy? I'm not sure. I've, I've never felt like they looked particularly similar in the movie. She, Uma Thurman was so young. Wasn't she like 19 or something when they made this movie? 18. And Michelle Pfeiffer is, is young, but clearly not that young. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't see the, don't see the similarities. They, they do um, operate kind of as foils for one another, right? Like it's possible to see in this movie that um, Uma Thurman could have become Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, had she not encountered (laughs) Valmont in the course of the movie, uh, you know, for, for better or for worse. And so that I think that maybe they're pl- they play up some of those commonalities in a way, but uh, yeah, I don't have didn't have that confusion. Mike, what about you? Uh, no, not so much. Um, I got some of the guys confused more often just because you know almost like the problem we had watching um, Permanent Record is they're putting on the HMF pinafore and everyone is sort of dressed in these powdered wigs and the women are all dressed you know the same and it's hard to tell characters apart and stuff and and I kind of got a bit of that here with the men from time to time, but. Not so much with the girls. I, I actually kind of thought they made him a little distinct because they were his two separate conquests in the film. It's like his two goals, and they were very different from each other. Right. I almost, throughout the film, the Uma character, almost, I kind of maybe got her a little closer to Glenn Close. You know, she's almost transforming into that just in her mannerisms, in the way that she controls herself and stuff. Mm. But Maybe I'm just going crazy. Maybe I just can't tell people apart anymore. I don't know. I feel like a couple of movies lately. I don't know. It's just, well, it's just a weird thing that happens. With the stuff we've had to watch online, especially, I, that is completely forgiven. But that, that's where it's happened a couple of times. Like the VHS, you know, when, when it's pixelated and it's hard to tell. Like, so we've had to go through some stuff like that. Joey, maybe if you watch it another 40 or 50 times, it'll become very clear. That's, that, oh, okay. worked, that worked for me. So a lot of the movies that we've been doing for Keanu Club, like for the most part, I generally like them, but they're they're not movies that I really want to go back and rewatch. And I don't think it's necessarily because this is like a Hollywood movie as opposed to just some Canadian production. But this is definitely one of the few movies that we've done so far that I want to go back and I feel like I would is definitely rewards more than one viewing, so you can sort of see the manipulations or like see like what leads up to them and sort of 
almost kind of play along with the game that they're yes. playing. Yeah, mm-hmm. once you realize where it's all going, once the end, you sort of get to the end, and, and then you begin to trace back, maybe because it was based on a play, each of the characters is, is so well-defined and their, and their arc is so specific through the movie. You can see as they're each being hurt by one another and then hurting other people and how those, how those sort of, um, you know, the, 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 how playful it is at the beginning and how sort of the sparring at the beginning turns into literal, a literal duel, a sword fight at the end of the movie. And that, that transition as, as rushed as, as some of it may be, um, the, that transition for me works pretty effortlessly in, in the course of the movie. The other thing about this movie that I noticed watching it this time, I have not seen it now for, oh, probably Five five years. I'll say five years. <laughs> I do watch it fairly regularly. But I had forgotten that they didn't speak with English accents. I was surprised hearing it this time that they're all speaking with American accents. What did you guys think about that? I think a lot of them are kind of selling it. Like, even though they're not speaking in those accents, they're all sort of selling it to a certain extent, except for the reason that we're here. Keanu is just like, he's not even trying to fit into the era. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a problem because you're right, like they're not, but he, I think he sticks out the most because he's just Keanu in the 1700s. So I mean, it's just Malkovich and Glenn Close and like, you know, they have like this sort of air of sophistication, I think just about them in general that like you're able to, you know, even like in like, and I think they're doing a good job in this movie, but like in other movies, if they're not committed, you might still be willing to give them a pass because like, oh, that's like, they're just a decision. Like they sort of have like this esteem built up around them. And here, you're just like, oh, right, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And then, like, Keanu comes walking and he's just like, hey, guys, you see, like, that, you know, like, the, the, I just love, I love the opera. And it's just like, oh, okay, like, this is just, you know, Keanu being Keanu. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. He sort of breaks the pace a little bit. Malkovich and Glenn Close, like, they're really great. Like, I guess this is early Malkovich, but, like, he has just always been amazing. You're right all about, like, that era of sophistication and all that. Like, they just bring so much that I almost didn't notice that they weren't speaking French until halfway through the movie, you know? And then I was like, oh, well, I, I suppose I'd, I'd still like to watch this with a French dub and English subtitles at some point. Like, that would still be nice, but it's not very necessary. Like, it's not distracting. And I think that also has to do just with the story. You know, as far as the story, for me, you know, you're saying, like, repeat viewings. Like, I did watch this twice, and the second time was just twice as good for me because I almost didn't really understand what the stakes were to begin with at the start you know because this world is so foreign and i was like well this bet doesn't seem like it's gonna cause that much damage and then i realized oh well in this time period in this social class and with this kind of wealth (laughs) you know they're just literally going out to destroy people's reputations which is everything they have you know and like that i definitely picked up on by the end of the first viewing but it was great watching it the second time because I understood what the stakes were right from the start. Yeah, I think I, I, I sort of had the same idea. And I mean, I only watched it once, but I did sort of follow along in a way, like with the plot summary on Wikipedia. Because I was just like, because it, it does sort of seem like, oh, like this isn't like, like we're just going to sort of like, you know, give him a bad name. And then like, as you go on, you're like, oh, like that, like you're right. Like you, it becomes more and more important. Like, like the stakes are sort of higher. And like, what's also kind of interesting about the movie is that, how risk not risque but like you know like of the time period i mean like that's that one speech that glenn close gives to uma thurman about i mean it's all part of their manipulation and all part of everything but she's basically like you know like you don't like women don't have anything like we're we're like we're nothing in this world so like use the one thing that you got like basically use your body and like get the most you can from it and like that's like a crazy like interaction 
allow Monsieur de Valmont to continue your instruction. Convince your mother you've forgotten Dancini and raise no objection to the marriage. But Monsieur de Bastide, when it comes to marriage, one man is as good as the next. And even the least accommodating is less trouble than a mother. Are you saying I'm going to have to do that with three different men? I'm saying, you stupid little girl, that provided you take a few elementary precautions, you can do it or not with as many men as you like, as often as you like, in as many different ways as you like. Our sex has few enough advantages. You may as well make the best of those you have. Yeah, it's totally true. One of the things that makes this movie feel so modern, I think, in addition to sort of to the way they talk and even the way that they act. I mean, Malkovich has this kind of casual laid back way, flops on couches and stuff. I'm used to or I was used to in high school, you know, the Masterpiece Theater, you know, Merchant Ivory, you sit, everyone sits very properly on the couch and and uh, and he's just flopping around like it's, you know, like it's it's, um, you know, 1988. And I think that the gender politics in this movie or the discussion of the gender politics gets into one of the reasons that the story keeps being told, which is that these questions of what role a society allows women, how circumscribed their roles are, and how their their sexuality enters into that, either by their own choosing or forced upon them, is something that you know continues to we still debate and are and are struggling with today. And so you get to scenes like that, and that exchange between them, Glenn Close's advice to Uma Thurman, is something that you could imagine in in another you know in girlfriend experience on TV now, or in the this sort of territory continues to be mined for drama and and it i just think it works really well here what's kind of interesting about that scene too is glenn close is usually always manipulative guarded and she's never giving advice right like it just never seems like she is being honest like she always seems like everything she's saying is to be manipulative but right. in that scene it kind of feels like she's being genuine right yes. like she sees the path that they've set uma on and she kind of feels responsible at that moment and i i almost wonder if she thinks it's you know gone too far malkovich has fallen in love with Michelle Pfeiffer and that wasn't part of the deal and that is hurting Glenn Close. You know, they're not going to play their games anymore. It was very interesting just because it, I wondered if she was sort of looking for a way to dissolve the whole situation. But then Uma just kind of takes her advice and, and it just keeps going and going. It's almost like there's nothing she could say honestly or or not to uh, it's gone too far, you know. There's no stopping it. It's be- beyond her control. <laughs> It's beyond my control. 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 Beyond my control. It's beyond my control. Quite beyond my control. So now one question that I have for you, maybe, I mean, this sort of goes back to, I think, what Tobin was saying about how this is still like a story or like a plot line that we, we see today. If this was set in modern times, I mean, the whole, the whole not, not the point of the movie, but at the end of the movie, everybody either ends up dead or sad. Like, there's no happy ending, I don't think, for anybody. And it's just like, you know, there's, there's no winners. Like, it's almost like right. the, the most dangerous game or whatever. But, like, if this was set in modern days, I, and, like, the stakes were exactly what they were in terms of, like, what was at stake, I don't think it would have as much of an impact, right? 
Right, and that's you know was one of the problems with Cruel Intentions. And the idea of transposing this story to high school is a great idea. I wish I'd come up with it. <laughs> I remember when that movie came out, I was like, God, I wish I'd I wish I'd thought of that because that's that's a winner. The problem is you have to you have to uh, de-escalate the stakes because that movie tries to do some of the same things in terms of having people die at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. I think one of the characters gets hit by a car or something instead mm-hmm. of I yeah. just it just doesn't work as well as as it does in this movie. So you're totally right. The the stakes are different, partly because in many ways we have you know thankfully moved past some of the circumscribed role, roles for women and for men and and the and class and 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 all that. It's just in in sort of its fundamental ways. I'm I'm not sure that we have. Yeah, and while I remember enjoying Cruel Intentions, uh, I like this version a lot more. Um, I just think the stakes are higher because of the time period, quite frankly. You know, I mean, France is on the edge of revolution, you know, it's basically a few years away from here. So everything's going to come crashing down. It's almost like Game of Thrones, you know, where it's like all this infighting is going on and in the end it doesn't matter because winter's coming and everyone's right, right, <laughs> everyone's right. just going to get wiped out and uh yeah with cruel intentions it's uh it just didn't translate well enough it might have worked a little better in college but i think the characters were too young and they tried to pull some risque stuff like making the main character like glenn close and the malkovich versions in cruel intention were stepbrother and sister you know so right. they, there was some kind of weird translations going on and what they chose to keep and and modernize it just didn't quite fit as well and yeah and i just think the period is what sells it so much it's funny too mike that you mentioned the revolution and and earlier marie antoinette because she had a copy of this book when this book came out Uh, but it was but it was so scandalous that rumors are that she had to put a fake cover on it so that people wouldn't know. The other thing I would, the last thing I would just mention uh, about the, the history of this movie, and then I'll, <laughs> we can we can go on to talk about Keanu, is that the book itself is epistolary. It's written in letters, and so at the end of this movie, when Malkovich gives the letters that he's traded back and forth, you know how earlier Glenn Close had wanted all the correspondence from everybody in writing. She has copies of letters that everybody has has written back and forth. Michelle Pfeiffer, Umar Thurman, little notes from uh, Keanu. And then, and then it's written back to them, and he he turns over those letters and circulates those let they circulate those letters to the to high society, and that's how she's that's his revenge against her, right? That's his ultimate win in this movie is that her reputation is destroyed. That's all she has. Well, the book itself is just those letters. You're you're reading through the letters that everyone has written back and forth and piecing together the story as it goes. I like that I know that, and that's sort of you know when I watch this again, whenever that is, I'll, I'll keep that in mind because there is such like a, an attention paid to the letters in this movie, and I just sort of chalked it up to the fact that it's you know of the time that's how people communicated, but the fact that like it's so integral or so core to the story, like the the original work, makes more sense because I mean, how many scenes we see in this movie of people writing letters or reading letters or like you know intercepting mail mm-hmm. and trying to read it, and, and it's just there's such an emphasis. And I didn't know that. And now that makes sense. It works better. Not that it doesn't work, you know, not knowing that, but I think it makes it work even better knowing that. And it's one of the things that I think makes the makes the film feel more modern today than maybe even it did when it came out is how, you know, we've replaced that with, with email and text and Snapchat mm-hmm. and whatever else. Like our social media now are the letters that these people were writing back and forth, you know, to one another before there were telephones. That's cool. That'd be like uh, if someone wrote a book comprised entirely of their tweets or something right, like that. Right. Um, it's happened. They, they're yeah, out there. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny because in a few movies, we're going to get to Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that book right. is structured in a very similar way. So it's kind of weird that uh, we're going to get another movie where 
people are going to be reading lots of letters and it's going to be based on a book of letters. So speaking of down the road and movies we're going to get to, the one thing that links them all is that Keanu Reeves is in all of them. And this movie is one of those movies where... He's the goalie, right, basically? He is the goalie. He sort of, he shows up pretty early. And I was like, I knew that Mike had said early on that he's not in it that much. You know, I was sort of expecting him to be kind of peppered throughout it, but he shows up kind of early. And then I'm like, it's another hour before he shows up again. And, you know, the movie's enjoyable enough, but it's also, like, the reason that we're watching this is for him. And I sort of wish we got more, except if there was more of him, I don't know if it would necessarily work, because he's so anachronistic in ways. Chevalier, I don't believe you know my cousin, Madame de Valange. This is Chevalier Danceny and Madame's daughter, Cecile. Tell us what we should think of the opera. Oh, it's sublime, don't you find? Monsieur Danceny is one of those rare eccentrics who come here to listen to the music. I do look forward to our next meeting. Charming young man. Penniless, regrettably. He's one of the finest music teachers in the city. Yeah, to be fair, he shows up first 16 minutes into the movie, and then again at 26 minutes, and then it's an hour until we see him again. But he doesn't speak very much in those scenes. This first scene of him crying at the opera, right? He's a music teacher, right? And he's crying at the opera, and not to go in the weeds again, but in the director's commentary with the screenwriter and the director, they talk about how um, it was the, the first day, I think, of shooting with Keanu, and he used up all his emotion in the wide shot, and so he had nothing left in the close-up, which <laughs> apparently drove, drove Stephen Frears, the director, just crazy. Got very mad at him because of that. And Keanu Reeves is a weird presence in this movie. Uh, it's hard for me to, to, to remove from him what I think of him now having seen all the movies he made after this. But even at the time, I think he's, he has this kind of, you know, hayseed, dumbstruck Southern California vibe, right? The character is meant to be very naive, and he really is. He, he plays that, you know, to the hilt here. And I'm still not entirely sure that it works. It worked better this time for me than it had back when I was in high school, when I thought that he was the complete weak link in the movie. But yeah, but what did you guys think? How, how does he match up to these other characters once he starts having these scenes, especially with, with uh, Glenn Close and Uma Thurman here? Well, what I like about it is that he's sort of painted from the outset as this, like, outsider, right? Because they even say, I don't know, I guess this is maybe supposed to be a joke, but they call him one of those rare eccentrics who comes to the opera to listen to the music. And so, you know, even though he's doing what he's supposed to do, like, maybe that's their way of saying, like, he's not playing by, like, our rules of society. Like, it's not, like, he doesn't care about maybe his image or whatever. And so he is sort of painted as this outsider, and he's not, I don't want to say he's, like, a joke, but he's not taken seriously, right? Yeah, that's part of the reason why they decide to include him in their little escapade, right, is that he's very naive. They think he's going to be very easy to manipulate and control, and for the most part, he is. And, well, Glenn Close is sort of doing her own side deal with Keanu that we find out about, but, yeah, he's just a pawn is what I see him as. He's a pawn in a game he doesn't even realize it, and he does play that well, but you're right. It does sound like he just stepped right off the beach. You know, I, his character is very pivotal. It's weird. It's like one of those characters that's not on screen a lot, but is very central to the story and the game and everything that's going on. Maybe if he was on screen a few more times, we would get a bit more used to him and realize his eccentricities are what makes the character. He's sort of like a blend of Michelle Pfeiffer and Uma Thurman in ways. In that he's got the naivete of Uma Thurman that, you know, we're not seeing this other movie, but basically, you know, toward the end we find out that 
Glenn Close is basically doing the same thing with him that John Malkovich is doing with Uma. Mm-hmm. That they're both like these sort of like baby faced mm-hmm. being seduced or taught the ways of the world by these older people. But he's also he's like this pure of heart and like willing to do whatever. And that sort of lines up more with Michelle Pfeiffer. And so I think, you know, his character for how was a, for as important as he is and as intertwined with everything that he actually winds up being, it's sort of weird that we don't see him a little bit more at least than we do. That makes a lot of sense to me, what you just said about him and how he's thematically like the other characters, yeah. You know, he's described by Glenn Close later as naive and mawkish, the character is. And and it, and he he's playing that. There's no doubt that he's playing that. I think maybe it's that, so in this movie, you have these two very corrupted characters in Glenn Close and John Malkovich, two characters who sort of become corrupted in Michelle Pfeiffer and um, Uma Thurman, and then... Maybe part of it is that Keanu's character does not have does not get that same kind of arc, and maybe because he's a man, he doesn't have to or something. I don't know, but but I wonder if part of it is that all he gets to play is kind of naive and mawkish through the whole movie, mm. and so you don't see him evolve into anything. Or or then now to give him less credit, maybe it's that he doesn't have the Keanu at this time as an actor does not have the subtext and gravitas. To, to let us believe there's anything else underneath there going on. Like, why would Uma Thurman ever be interested in this guy? That's a question that I, one of the questions that I have in this movie. And, you know, is he a great music teacher? Well, uh, in the scene where they're doing their duet, it's just terrible. I mean, <laughs> she sounds horrible. Slips her this little note, and it's kind of cute. And, but in terms of like him being able to, to to teach her music, I'm not convinced that he's any great shakes at that. So what he cries at the opera is—is is it that he's kind of cute? I don't know. I just I feel like that's maybe where it falls shortest for me uh, with his character. Because I think if if he was a character that I really thought she had a genuine attraction for, even if it's not love, even even if it's just an infatuation, I think I would be able to buy that more. She's almost just told to like him, right? Right, <laughs> like, right. They invite him over and they're like, oh, um, well, you're supposed to marry Bastide, but, you know, check out Keanu. He's younger. He's attractive. He's actually on screen in this movie. Uh, we're not just going to refer to him by name. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and she's just one of the, you know, she's straight out of the convent. So she doesn't really know anything. She's kind of a... They say man child. She's kind of like a girl child in a lot of ways, right? Where she's a woman child, where she's just learning everything for the first time so she's just very naive too she'll just do whatever you tell her to do in a lot of ways it's very it's very bizarre but you know i can imagine at the time a lot of girls unfortunately must have been like that all you need to know about like her behavior is that in one scene she's basically sort of raped by malkovich right or she's yes, yes. you know to some extent and then Within five minutes, she gives in to Glenn Close saying, like, oh, no, like, you should embrace that. And she's like, oh, OK, like, maybe I should embrace that. It, it's crazy. Yeah, it's totally true. And, and and I do give Keanu credit for in that first scene where he meets Uma Thurman, he is just struck by her. I mean, he is he head over heels for her. And I, I, I buy that in that moment. And who wouldn't be, you know, with 18 year old Uma Thurman there? I mean, she, she is luminous. Right. It's just that, as you say, he doesn't emotionally doesn't get to go as far. It's so weird to me at the end of the movie where he just sort of 
bust out the sword fighting skill. I don't think he's necessarily well trained. Like it's not like a super great choreographed fight, and maybe that's the point. Mm. But it's like where did this like sort of nerdy, shy, naive music teacher learn the sword <laughs> skills to be able to defeat John Malkovich? Well, he is of a, of a high class background. He's a, he's a chevalier. I mean, he is a, a knight, right? I mean, he has you know he he has some the training that any highborn you know lad even not one of, you know, a great house or whatever, would have, would include dueling at this time. It's just that, as you say, he isn't good at it. It's like he's the kid on the, the baseball team who can't hit to save his life, but it's like he, you're in eighth grade baseball and he's got to be on the team, you know, or whatever. Like, he knows how to swing the bat. He can't just can't hit the ball. And, you know, he goes into this duel because his honor has now been twice besmirched between Malkovich revealing the issues with Glenn Close, and then also the fact that he's been he's been stupin Uma while Keanu's been away, and so he, he he sort of he has to defend everybody's honor in this duel. You know, they had a some fancy swordsman stunt coordinator actually make up the duel, and then Malkovich and Keanu sort of roughed it up to make it much more sort of like a street brawl kind of uh, make it rough around the edges, not like a traditional choreographed sword fight. And I think that works really well. I love this fight at the end because it's, you could see how sort of bloody and brutal fencing would actually be when you're, when you're cutting at one another and literally trying to kill one another. Yeah. This scene brought back uh, memories of young blood at the end of the hockey Mm. match where Mm -hmm. they started dueling with their, with their sticks. <laughs> and, yeah. and I was like, oh, this is just how they used to play hockey. Okay. Yeah. And I, I just think, yeah, fencing would just be like the sport of the aristocracy. So, yeah, he's not great at it, but he knows how to do it. And I actually think, to be quite honest, Malkovich kind of lets him win here. They are exhausted. It does look exhausting. But in the end, I think Malkovich's mental state gives in before like his physical ability i mean i just think like he's thinking about what he's done and what kind of person he is and he's ready to sort of throw in the towel here and uh and keanu isn't against taking the win either it's a fair win you know it's not like he just throws down his sword or anything Uh, he makes him earn the win but i did get the sense that the malkovich gives up Yes, and you know, what I, what I think Malkovich is doing here is a couple of things. One, it's his sort of redemption for what he's done to Michelle Pfeiffer. And he deserves it because Michelle Pfeiffer is wonderful and he's broken her heart to the point <laughs> that she's dying, you know. And so he, so he's earned this, right? It, this is his, the only way he can sort of make amends with her is to give his life. And then the second thing he's doing is that this is the death blow to Glenn Close. One of the arguments that these friends of mine and I in high school would have over and over again is who wins dangerous liaisons. Mm. Does she win because she's alive and she's destroyed everyone around her? Or does he win because she now has to live in this world as with a ruined reputation, which is just going to you know, be the, the non-literal death of her, right? Like who has it worse at the end of this movie? And this was, was apparently a very difficult thing for them to figure out how to shoot, how to make this clear and believable that, as you say, Mike, that, that Malkovich is making Keanu earn it, but then make it clear that he's making a choice to let Keanu win at the end. And I, I think they pull it off, the way he holds that sword up and puts one finger on it and then glances back really quick and then lets it go as though he's he's turning around for a strike and then gets stabbed. I, th- I just think that that is such an elegant way to do that. That's the surgeon! No, no. Do as I say! Two things, a word of advice, which of course you may ignore, but it is honestly 
we intended. And request. Go on. The advice is be careful of the Marquise de Matoy. You must permit me to treat with skepticism anything you have to say about her. Nevertheless, I must tell you, in this affair, we are both her creatures. As I believe her letters to me will prove. When you have read them, you may decide to circulate them. I also noticed the second time around, there's a great little shot. It's super fast when Malkovich is getting dressed in the morning, but he puts on his sword and he's got it on for like most of the movie. And it's just like, oh, okay, that's going to come out at the end, <laughs> you know, the second yeah, time check around. Yeah, check off sword, yeah. And I really, yeah, I just enjoyed the grit and the realism of the duel because it just felt very real and period and like, yeah, exhausting. I think the answer to your question in high school, I think we, we mentioned it earlier, we talked about it a little bit earlier, is that nobody wins. I mean, I guess if you have to pick a winner, I would say that Malkovich wins. Is there anybody in this movie that you'd want to be in the end of the movie? I don't think the answer, like, I think the answer is no, right? You mean in yeah, real yeah. life? No. Well, I mean, like, if, if you, yeah, like, <laughs> would you, would you want to be in, like, in their, in their situations? And, like, nobody's in a good place. Well, not at the end of the movie, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, Keanu is pretty much the closest unscathed right like he's right. probably young enough and the least involved to the point where he can probably build back a reputation to the point where he could live comfortably if he makes it through the revolution yes true i i like to believe that that he and peter capaldi will ride off somewhere and, and, uh... <laughs> he'll travel through time each yes, on their own. Yes. yes in different directions well considering the next movie is bill and ted i mean it's it's basically the keanu doctor who so there's a there's a little bit of a connection there is there anything else that we want to talk about this movie? Because I'm sure we could talk about the actual movie a lot, but in terms of Keanu, in terms of the conversation that we've been having, anything else that sort of is outstanding that we should we should mention before we wrap up? Um, I just had one quick question, and maybe we should have brought this up at the beginning, but what the heck. Um, the actual challenge has been set forth because Glenn Close's husband ran off with Malkovich's side piece, and now... Glenn Close's husband is going to marry Uma Thurman. He is the, is he Bastide, the one they talk about? Well, yeah, I got the sense that she was scorned by this guy who was engaged. No, she, he wasn't going to go with Uma. Wait, no, he wasn't going to go with Uma. He was going to go with Michelle Pfeiffer. Is that what you said? No, no Michelle so, Pfeiffer's married. Yeah, so oh. Glenn, Glenn Close had this guy and he left Glenn Close for one of John Malkovich's girls and then right. got bored with her and then is now going to marry Uma Thurman because right. she's rich and will sort of carry him on. And so the idea is let's ruin Uma Thurman so that my lousy ex-husband is going to wind up with a bride that's four months pregnant and has Malkovich all over her. Uh, and then at the same time, let's make it so that she doesn't even want that guy, but wants Keanu. Yes, yeah, so the only thing I think is not right there is that she wasn't married to him. Bastide wasn't yeah. wasn't her husband. She's only been married once, and her husband died. And she's she makes a point in the movie of saying, you know, the, you know the reason I never remarried, right? She she talks about about this. She was not ready to end it. The idea is that that both she and Malkovich were left, and they they are the ones who who leave. They're not the ones who yeah. are left. I need you to carry out an heroic enterprise. You remember when Bastide left me? Yes. Went off with that fat mistress of yours whose name escapes me. Yes, yes. No one has ever done that to me before, or to you, I suspect. 
I was quite relieved to be rid of her, frankly. No, you weren't. For some years now, Bastide has been searching for a wife. He was always unshakably prejudiced in favor of convent education, and now he's found the ideal candidate. Cecile Valange. Very good. And her 60,000 a year, that must have played some small part in Bastide's calculations. None whatsoever. Bastide's priority, you see, is a guaranteed virtue. I wonder if I'm beginning to guess what it is you're intending to propose. Bastide is with his regiment in Corsica for the rest of the year. That should give you plenty of time. You mean to? She's a rosebud. You think so? And he'd get back from his honeymoon to find himself the laughing stock of Paris. Well. Yes. Love and revenge. Two of your favorites. Like, it made sense enough to me while I was watching where I didn't question things, and now trying to remember yeah. what actually, like, why things happened the way they did, it's, well, it's hard to remember. But it all makes sense. Like, the movie lays it out well enough. Um, the only other thing I was wondering was, you know, why they were so rich, and I suppose it was Glenn Close's husband. First, hu must first have been husband. First yeah. husband's wealth. And then with, for Malkovich, I assumed he was living off his aunt because he, she's the only relative of his we see in the entire movie. Yeah, it's, he also has a title. I mean, he's a he's a vicomte. So it's um, old family money. Basically. Yeah, mon money and money comes from the land, right? Like they own all this land, and they get the yeah. they're getting you know money money from the land. They're the landed gentry, right? They are the aristocracy. He's a he's a count, basically. Okay, that's all. Because I was just like, no wonder they're so bored because they have like every, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything. Like <laughs> they're just it, literally just like we're so bored. Let's just destroy some lives. It's one of the great things about the beginning of the movie, this opening, the, the opening bit where they're both getting ready, is that you see it takes, you know, like six or eight people each to get um, Malkovich and Glenn Close ready for the day. And these people do everything for them. And if you notice at the very first thing we see of Malkovich, his hand comes out of the covers and one of the guys there has a towel for him. And his hand just takes the towel and goes under the covers to, you know, to wipe up whatever residue he has from his you know conquest the night before. And you don't get that the first time. I didn't get what, what he was doing necessarily. And then as you watch the movie subsequent times, you're like, oh my God, that's kind of, that's kind of like, <laughs> that's kind of gross. You know, you get the sense of their, of their wealth and their um, status and their do they have all these people like he just points at the wig and someone brings it over and you know like they, they have nothing but leisure time and they've been so corrupted by that that all the you know the, their that their ma major entertainment is as you say playing these games to ruin other people's lives if only they had television <laughs> this will never happen again because we have yes. reality tv you know well i mean cruel intentions happen so i mean it will it might happen again who knows <laughs> Well, they actually they are making the guy who made Cruel Intentions is making the making it for TV now. Oh, well, there you go. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of Cruel Intentions, did you guys know that Swoozie Kurtz is in both this yes. movie and Cruel Intentions? Oh, she's in the opening. She is Ryan Phillippe's therapist. Oh, the she's the therapist. And he mm. has ruined her daughter, and that's she's only in that that scene, I believe, of, of that movie. But yes, I'm telling you, there's not a lot of trivia you can find about this movie that I, that I do not. <laughs> I now, would you prefer this version with Sarah Jessica Parker in the role of Uma instead of Uma? She was originally offered the role and turned it down. Wow, what did she do around this time? Footloose? 
I don't know, but also uh, Drew Barrymore almost came close to playing the role of Cecile. Michelle Pfeiffer, talking about Valmont earlier, Michelle Pfeiffer was offered the Glenn Close role in that movie, but instead chose this movie, chose the Torvel role in this movie. And there's one other. Annette Benning was considered for the Glenn Close role in this movie, and instead she went up and played that in Valmont. So like, there's all these people who are like basically hovering around these two movies <laughs> yeah. that just sort of chose alliances and went with one of them. Yeah, and Valmont, you know, one of the reasons they had to rush into production, not only that was that movie being made, but it was being made by Milos Forman, you know, who once flew oh. over the cuckoo's nest and eventually People versus Larry Flint and um, Amadeus, right? Like, it's just, this is a big gun, you know? And I don't think Stephen Frears, the director of this movie, who would, you know, who would go on to become a real, or maybe even was at the time, a, a sort of a big, big-name director, but, you know, he, he doesn't, didn't direct his biggest movies like The Queen until, until later on. So, yeah, so it's, it's going to be fascinating to know how exactly all that sort of wound out. But it's like two high schools, rival high schools in the same town doing production of the same play. And they're like stealing each other's cast members or something. I don't know. It, it's worth – Valmont is worth seeing. You should, if, you, if you enjoy this movie at all, it's worth taking a look at. I think it's definitely better than, um, uh, than, than Cruel Intentions. Did you know, Tobin, maybe you probably already did, <laughs> that Madonna wore one of Glenn Close's costumes at the 1990 yes. MTV BMA? I remember that. Yes. Every, yes. Not everyone knew where it came from, but everybody remembers that. Yes. Every, yeah. What? I remember watching that and the people in my house were just going like, oh, Madonna. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. While we're doing trivia. Um, so one of the great interviews with Glenn Close about this movie, she talked about how they had to postpone her some of her scenes. Like she didn't come onto the film until like it was halfway done shooting or something like that because she just had her, her daughter. And that when she's asked now about this movie, she says, you know, it's all kind of a haze because I was a new mom. But the one thing I remember is I have the most beautiful breasts. And because <laughs> she's because she's, you know, breastfeeding this this baby and you, and you and you they really do spill out over these, you know, the bodices and these, these gowns. The other interesting thing, too, and I remember thinking this in high school, like for a movie that's all about is largely about these people having sex with one another. They spend so much time getting into these clothes, like all the fasteners and hoops and ties and and like then to just take them off. Like it just it seems like a seems like an awful lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like it's such a challenge just to get out of your clothes. Why do you play all these mind games on top of it? It's like you're just making it even longer and prolonging it even more. Or because you have to do all that, like you're you're dying, you're so hungry for anything else. You know what I mean? Like you're just like, I can't I can't do it. I need something else. I'm tired of getting into and out of clothes. Yeah, so Glenn Close, like you were saying, Tobin, they, they just like the first half of production, she just couldn't be filmed because right. she was just giving birth. So all of her parts of the movie are done in the second half of production. Which is crazy given how much she's in the movie, right? I mean, she's in a lot of this movie. I guess yeah. not, not when he's yeah. off seducing Michelle Pfeiffer, but her presence looms so large in this, in this movie that it's, it's, it's just hard for me to imagine them piecing that schedule together. I wonder if maybe that's why we don't get more of her and Keanu. Ah, maybe, maybe. Maybe. That is crazy because I would even consider her the main character of this film because it opens on her putting on her makeup and it closes with a shot of her taking off her makeup. My last note, aside from the fact that Uma Thurman will return and even cowgirls get the blues, which I think is probably one of the lowest rated movies that we have coming up in terms of critics over the next (laughs) dozen or so movies. Maybe if they had watched a couple things we had watch <laughs> they, they might have changed their tune so we'll be the judge uh, so i said not only we talk, i mentioned earlier that not only do michelle pfeiffer and uma thurman both 
go on to play Batman villains, that Michelle Pfeiffer was Catwoman and Uma Thurman would play Poison Ivy, but they also have the same birthday. They're both born on April 29th, so they're basically the same person. <laughs> Glenn Close would go on to be uh, Nova Prime in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, there we go. And Cruella DeVille. All right. <laughs> right? And Patty Hughes on death. <laughs> um. Cool. Well, any other any last thoughts, Tobin? I I've exhausted my notes. No, I just I mean I could talk about this movie forever. I I really do. And I, sometimes you know it's it's um, dangerous. Ha! Huh, no pun intended. <laughs> to go back to movies that you had known, like that you loved be, er, early on in your life, and like they, if they don't hold up. But maybe I'm blind to it. But I I really really like this movie. The only other thing I would say is that um and I and I say this because I think it makes. Um, I think it somehow makes me look good that my wife has read this book in the original French uh, in college um, and, and, and loved it. I don't know why that makes me look good. Maybe because I got her to marry sure, with a classy lady, got her to marry me. Yeah, that, that must be it. And, and I've read the play, but I've never read the, the, the book, English translation of the book. And I have it on my shelf. And maybe now I'll finally pick it up. Well, I learned how to spell liaisons because of this movie. Not that I'm ever going to have to spell it again, I don't think. Um, and not that I will remember how to spell it six months from now, but now I know how to spell liaisons. L-I-A-I-S-O-N-S. Well done, well done. You're welcome. Do you, can you pronounce the name of the original play? Les liaisons dangereuses. Oh. Danger, dangereux? Dangereuses, but yeah, really close. Dangereux. Yeah, yeah. les liaisons that reminds dangereuses, me of, yeah. That reminds me of Arrested Development, where they have like <laughs> the, the, the dangerous cousins or whatever. Yes, Do you remember that? Yes, yes, yes. Well, Tobin, thank you very much for joining us. You will be back again before too long for – I know you're coming back from Much Ado. Are you coming back before that? I don't you're know. Back, no, you're back from my own private. Oh, there I don't we know. go. It's yeah, about 10 movies. There we go. And then shortly after that's Much Ado. So you'll be back in three short Keanu years, but about 11 movies from now. So <laughs> look forward <laughs> he, to you he, joining us once again. I look forward to it too, guys. This is lots of fun. I appreciate it. And this episode was much more complex and in-depth than I thought it was going to be. I'm glad that we had such a dangerous liaisons expert on our hands to <laughs> help us parse all this out. I'll, I'll, be, I'll do the same thing when we get to Much Ado, but uh, other than that, we're sort of on our own here. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And for all things, for Tobin's past episodes, and make sure you're there for his future episodes, go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can find out everything that our podcast network is doing and go from there. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. beyond my control.